welcome again to this ongoing series on last day events. This is actually the last presentation. This is the question and answer session, and I have greatly enjoyed going through the previous 10 parts. And we're going to have one last session today where we will go through some questions, and I'll do the best I can to answer many of the questions that have come in over the course of this series. And so we are going to do that. One thing I, I want to remind you about before we get into the actual presentation is that I am going to be starting a series on the book of Daniel in the next few weeks. There will be a, a little bit of a break between the end of the series and the start of, of that series, but it will follow the outline of the book that I've written on Daniel. You can get a copy of the book from Remnant Publications, or you can get the ebook from Amazon. It's a Kindle version, and that way you could be ready to follow along for the series, so I encourage you to do that. And before we get into the session for today, I am going to ask the Lord to be with us, and we will go through as many questions as we can get through. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being with us during this series, and I just pray that you would give me clarity of thought and get, help my answers to be very clear, and uh, may we have a clear understanding of what's coming upon this world, and may we be found ready and faithful when you come, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, the first question I'm going to deal with has to do with the personation of Christ by Satan. This has generated a considerable amount of interest, and I understand this. You know, there's a lot of questions that have come in about it. I've had some dialogue with people via email, and even some comments on Facebook, on my Facebook page. And there is definitely this question that is out there, does Christ is Christ personated by Satan before the close of probation or after the close of probation? And I mentioned this in a couple of the presentations. When I went through the four stages of the Sunday Law, I had it in stage three before the close of probation. But as I studied further, especially when I got to the chapter on the time of trouble in the book Great Controversy, we find Ellen White placing the personation of Christ by Satan in that chapter. That led me to revise my position later in the series that I, as I'd studied it further. And what I found as I've looked at this even further, and I've talked to, to others about this point, is that this is a disputed point. There are credible sources on both sides. And I do believe, however, that the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy offer clarity on this issue. I do want to mention that I'm friends with Pastor Stephen Bohr. I reached out to him this past week to see where he was at on this issue. He has studied this issue. He's put considerable study into this issue. And he has a really good study series on this on from Matthew chapter 24. If you if you know Pastor Bohr, he's the speaker director of Secrets Unsealed. If you go to their ministry website, you can get a PDF study on his study notes from Matthew chapter 24, where he goes through last day events, which in part of that includes the personation of Christ by Satan. And interestingly, Pastor Bohr firmly believes that 
the personation of Christ by Satan occurs after the close of probation. So I simply mention that to say that there are credible sources on both sides. There's others. For example, um, some of you may know Dr. Norman Goley. He's written a book on last day events. He believes it's before the close of probation. And I want to mention this. This is the closing events chart. This is an excellent chart that if you haven't gotten, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, it's by Gordon Collier, and he believes that the personation of Christ by Satan is before the close of probation, but he acknowledges that there are others who believe that it's after the close of probation. So having said that, I just want to be clear here. We may differ on this point, but that doesn't mean that we can't disagree charitably on this point. You may see it differently than I see it, but I'm going to do the best that I can in the next few minutes to present why I believe um, the personation of Christ by Satan occurs after the close of probation. Now, I am going to share a couple of quotes that some used to suggest that it occurs before the close of probation. This first one is from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 50. And here we read, We are warned that in the last days he, referring to Satan, will work with signs and lying wonders, and he will continue these wonders until the close of probation, that he may point to them as evidence that he is an angel of light and not of darkness. Now, you'll notice here in this statement, it refers to signs and lying wonders that will continue into the close of probation. This doesn't specifically mention the personation of Christ by Satan in, in this passage, and it's very obvious that before probation closes, there's going to be a lot of miracles that are being used by the powers of darkness to win as many over to the side of darkness before probation closes. And so that's clear. There's no doubt that there will be deceptions, miracles, and things of that nature prior to the close of probation. Now, here's another statement. This is from Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, page 282. And this is referring to the personation of Christ by Satan. This is where there's a difference of understanding about the timing of this. But notice this. This is 19 MR 282. In the last days, Satan will appear as an angel of light with great power and heavenly glory and claim to be the Lord of the whole earth. So that's clearly the personation of Christ by Satan. He will declare that the Sabbath has been changed from the seventh to the first day of the week. And as Lord of the first day of the week, he will present the spurious Sabbath as a test of loyalty, loyalty to him. Then will take place the final fulfillment of the Revelator's prophecy. Now, I want to grab my Bible here. After she says this, she quotes Revelation 13, verses 4 through 18. Now, verse 3 of Revelation 13, you see that the papacy receives a deadly wound, then the deadly wound is healed. All the world wonders after the beast. And then verse 4 says, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? Worshipping the dragon, this would suggest that Satan is being worshipped, and this will take place when Satan personates Christ. However, you can't necessarily pinpoint the time of this, and some have tried to use this passage to say that when you get to verse 5, you have the 42 months, that there's going to be a literal fulfillment of the 42 months, and all of those things. Listen, Revelation 13 is not chronological because you have in verse 2 and 3, or especially verse 3, you have the deadly wound. Then the deadly wound is healed. All the world 
wonders after the beast and the world wandering after the beast is yet future and then worshiping the dragon you can certainly make the case that that's when satan is worshiped when he presents himself as christ then when you get back to verse 5 though that's referring to the 1260 years and then you go further into the chapter you see the second beast coming up out of the earth the united states of america and so we don't believe that there's going to be a second fulfillment of the United States of America as the second beast coming up out of the earth after Satan personates Christ. So you can't use this statement to say that there's going to be a literal 42 months after Satan personates Christ, or that there's going to be the United States coming up out of the, the, the earth a second time. That already happened around the time of 1798 when the deadly wound took place. So Revelation 13 is not chronological, but we see that right after the deadly wound is healed, we have the dragon being worshipped. And then, of course, you also see in verse 8 of Revelation 13, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And at that point, you could make a case, all who dwell on the earth sh shall worship him. That would be potentially after the close of probation if you have people's names written in the lamb's book of life. So that's this statement doesn't necessarily settle the issue one way or the other in my mind. I could see how you could put it before the close of probation, but it's not a slam dunk. Now, Here's where I want to focus in on to show why I believe this occurs after the close of probation. Now, I've read these statements earlier in the, in the series, so I'm not going to read every last word here, but here's what I want you to look at. You see, this is Great Controversy 627. This is from the chapter on the time of trouble. LMY identifies that Christ will cease his intercession in the sanctuary. That's the close of probation. And the unmingled wrath is the seven last plagues that's going to be poured out. And then you see her saying that the plagues will come. And at the end of this par paragraph, she says, says the revelator in describing those terrific scourges, there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped the image. That's Revelation 16.2 that's being quoted at the end of this paragraph. That's the first plague of the seven last plagues. So we see already from Ellen White that probation has closed when the first plague begins to fall. When the first plague begins to fall, we know that probation has closed. It's interesting, though, that more takes place in the attempts by Satan to deceive the world and the, and the saints, and we're going to see that as we progress through the plagues. So point number one here is that the quote from Great Controversy 627 shows that the plagues begin to fall when probation closes. Revelation 16 is... 16.2 is quoted in this statement. Now, how does this relate to Satan personating Christ? Well, let's keep going here. Great Controversy 5.61 says this, Satan has long been preparing for his final effort to deceive the world. The foundation of his work was laid by the assurance given to Eve and Eden, ye shall not surely die. So this is spiritualism. In the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's from Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Little by little, he has prepared the way for his masterpiece of deception and the development of spiritualism. He has not yet reached the full accomplishment of his designs, but it will be reached in the last remnant of time. Then going on, the very next sentence says the prophet, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. They are the spirits of devils 
working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. That's Revelation 16, 13, and 14. That's the sixth plague that's being mentioned here. Except those who are kept by the power of God through faith in his word, the whole world will be swept into the ranks of this delusion. So, notice this. This quote from Great Controversy 561 and 562 shows that Satan's masterpiece of deception involves spiritualism. That's when the three unclean spirits like frogs, the spirits of devils, go forth to deceive the world. And this is a description of the sixth plague and of the battle of Armageddon. Now here's the point. Probation has closed, yet only those kept by faith in the word of God will not be swept away by delusion. So what is this masterpiece of deception that takes place in the sixth plague after probation has closed? Why would there be the need for a masterpiece of deception after probation closes. Now here's the next point I'm going to make. Ellen White's clear statement on the personation of Christ is found in Great Controversy 624. Now there's other good statements, but this is her most well-known statement. And this is from the chapter entitled The Time of Trouble. The chapter begins with the close of probation on page 613, where she quotes Daniel 12.1, Michael stands up, probation closed. That's very clear. Now when we get to page 624. Notice what Ellen White says. Fearful sights of a supernatural character will soon be revealed in the heavens in token of the power of miracle-working demons. The spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world. Now, I put Revelation 16, 14 here in parentheses. Ellen White didn't put it there. I put that there, just so you know. But I'm, I, I'm showing you where that's coming from, because that's coming from the sixth plague. So the spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to fasten them in deception and urge them on to unite with Satan in his last struggle against the government of heaven. By these agencies, rulers and subjects will be alike deceived. Persons will arise pretending to be Christ himself and claiming the title and worship which belong to the world's Redeemer. Now this is correlates with Matthew 24 where it says false Christ will arise and deceive many. They will perform wonderful miracles of healing and profess to have revelations from heaven contradicting the testimonies, the testimony of the scriptures. And again, she places this when the time that you see that the spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world, and that's the sixth plague after probation is closed. And then she says, as the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. So this is a continuation of thought. You've had other people claiming to be Christ that are, are advancing Satan's cause as part of the three unclean spirits. Now Satan himself himself personates Christ as the crowning act in the great drama of deception. And this is the ultimate form of spiritualism, where Satan does a supernatural miracle to make himself look as if he is Christ. And she goes on to say the church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. And then you go on to see the quote, Christ has come, Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him. So here you see that the dragon is being worshipped by the world. And then he pronounces a blessing as Christ blessed his disciples when he was on the earth. 
And I'm kind of summarizing some of the points here, but you see his voice is soft and subdued. He assumes the character of Christ, claims to have changed Sabbath to Sunday. And then Ellen White says, this is the strong, almost overmastering delusion, like the Samaritans who were deceived by Simon Magus. The multitudes from the least to the greatest give heed to these sorceries, saying this is the great power of God. But the people of God will not be misled. The teachings of this false Christ are not in accordance with the scriptures. His blessing is pronounced upon the worshippers of the beast and his image, the very class upon whom the Bible declares that God's unmingled wrath shall be poured out. Now, here's the objection to the idea that Satan would personate Christ after the close of probation because they the point is and it's and this is a fair argument I will readily admit this the argument is that God's people are already sealed and the wicked have already received the mark of the beast so what's the point of the almost overmastering delusion taking place in the sixth plague just before the seventh plague and in the seventh plague you have the talent talents like the hail the weight of a talent and then the second coming of Christ shortly after that in the seventh plague. So why would you have Satan personating Christ in the sixth plague after probation closes? It's a good question, and I believe that we get some further help from inspiration. This is from Manuscript 16, page 1884. It's, It's Manuscript 16, 1884. Now, You can also find this statement in Last Day Events 164, 165. But notice what Ellen White says here. And this this is describing the personation of Christ by Satan very clearly. So the question is, what's the timing? And what's the purpose for being after the close of probation? Satan sees that he is about to lose his case. So the plagues have been falling. You've already had five plagues. And in Revelation 16, 12, it says the river Euphrates dries up, and so now Satan has to make one last desperate attempt. He cannot sweep in the whole world. He makes one more last desperate effort to overcome the faithful by deception. He does this impersonating Christ. He clothes himself with the garments of royalty, which have been accurately described in the vision of John. He has power to do this. He will appear to his deluded followers, the Christian world, who received not the love of the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, transgression of the law, as Christ coming the second time. So I see this as analogous to the drying up of the river Euphrates in Revelation 16, 12, which is the beginning of the sixth plague. And then you have the three unclean spirits like frogs. This, that's spiritualism and then the over, almost overmastering delusion is Satan personating Christ. Because the, the river Euphrates is what supplies Babylon and water represents people. And Babylon, which is the beast who gives its power seat which the dragon has given his power seat and authority to, they start to lose their source of power from the people as five plagues have fallen. And they're saying, hey, we're losing this battle. We thought we were on the right side, but we're the ones receiving the plagues. And the people we've condemned to death, they haven't received these plagues at all. So Satan sees that he's about to lose his case, and he's getting desperate now. So as the river Euphrates dries up, as the people withdraw their support from Babylon, now you have three unclean spirits like frogs. And by the way, the frogs represent the they were the that was the last plague in Egypt that the magicians were able to reproduce. 
Likewise, the sixth plague, when you have three unclean spirits like frogs, this is the last time that Satan can use his supernatural power to make it appear as if he is on the winning side. And he's going to run into trouble here because he is on the losing side here. So, we, we read in the next paragraph, he proclaims himself Christ, he is believed to be Christ, and similar statements, people say Christ has come, Christ has come. You, next paragraph we see here, it was that the masterly effort of Satan would have deceived the very elect, but, but who were the ones blessed by him? Whom did he make glad? Whom did he honor? And then you'll see that he was honoring the, the papacy and the, the fallen Protestant churches. And we get down to the end, where we see the deceptions of spiritualism, where Satan's lie is uttered, you shall not surely die. And then the blessing is pronounced by this false Christ upon the worshippers of the beast and his image, the people who have received the mark of the beast and the mark of the image of the beast. Then we go a few paragraphs later, we see that Jesus is looking upon his people and he says, take away the filthy garments. And I believe this represents the blotting out of sin, which would take place uh, when probation has closed. And so then we see Satan sees that he is about to lose his last chance of subverting these souls, and he brings all the powers of his satanic generalship into intense activity. This last great act is impersonating, so this last great act in the drama is impersonating Jesus Christ. His disguise is discerned by none but those who are established in the scriptures and acquainted with the word of God. And then this is the very interesting thing. At the very end of the statement, notice this. One effort more, and then Satan's last device is employed. He hears the unceasing cry for Christ to come, for Christ to deliver them. This last strategy is to personate Christ and make them think their prayers are answered. But this answers to the last closing work, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Here's the interesting thing. The prayers for deliverance from the saints especially takes place during Jacob's time of trouble. And that's at the end of Jacob's time of trouble is when God's people are delivered. The Battle of Armageddon is, a, is another way to describe Jacob's time of trouble. So Jacob's time of trouble occurs during the Battle of Armageddon when the three unclean spirits like frogs have been released, where Satan will perform his last act, which is the almost overmastering delusion. And God's people have been praying for deliverance. And listen, friends, God's people will be at their weakest point, in a sense, at the end of Jacob's time of trouble, just as Jacob physically was at his weakest, but spiritually at their strongest. Satan thinks he's striking God's people at their weakest point, but because they have held on to the Lord during this time, they will hold true. And so he thinks that he's going to hit God's people at their weakest point, they're praying for deliverance, then he appears making it as if he is the answer to their prayer, but they will not be deceived. So the, the prayer for deliverance from the saints comes especially during Jacob's time of trouble, and this is the final abomination of desolation when Satan personates Christ. But I see this clearly as being after the close of probation. Now why, again, now I read this statement earlier, this is Spalding McGam Collection, page 2, over this in earlier presentations, where Ellen White talks about after Christ finishes his work in the sanctuary, he comes out, places the sins of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat, and then while the plagues are falling, um, 
then, then the plagues start to fall upon the wicked. And in this next sentence, while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat who Satan is being led away, he makes a mighty struggle to escape. So I believe that his he, his last desperate attempt to escape during the plagues is when he personates Christ, but he's held fast by the hand that leads him. That's the fit man who leads him away. I believe the fit man symbolizes the 144,000 who will not be deceived by the personation of Christ by Satan. So, Satan personates Christ in his last-ditch effort to win the great controversy. Should God's people fail here, there will not be a people who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And so, Satan's charges would be proven to be true, where Satan says God's people cannot be faithful. They cannot keep the law of God. So, why does Satan personate Christ after the close of probation, just before Jesus comes? I believe that it's his last-ditch effort to try to win the great controversy because he sees that he's about to lose his cause. And so that's my understanding of this. Now look, if you see it differently, if you want to stick to the idea that it's before the close of probation, I respect that, and I you know, don't question your credibility or your faithfulness to being the Seventh-day Adventist. Um, we can see things differently and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we know in part and we prophesy in part, and we do our best to understand, and when we disagree, we show charity towards one another. And so that's my understanding on that. Now, there's other questions. There was a question that came in about this statement from Manuscript Release, Volume 5, page 305, where it says, India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, thousands of men and women are dying of starvation. The moneyed men, because they have the power to control the market, they purchase at low rates all they can obtain and then sell at greatly increased prices. This means starvation to the poorer classes and will result in a civil war. Um, where, and so the question is, where does this fit in the timeline? Well, notice the very next sentence. And this is from, again, 5MR305, there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation at that time. Shall Michael stand up the great prince? So it appears to me that the civil war that Ellen White talks about that involves India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, where thousands will die of starvation in the cities and in these nations because of the unjust practices of the wealthy, that's going to take place right around the time that probation closes and will probably continue into the period of time after probation closes while the plagues are falling. And so you may feel like you're saving yourself so that you can buy or sell, but then there's going to be starvation in the cities. And so it's going to be a terrible time, not just for the righteous, but for the wicked too. And so we want to just be faithful to the Lord. Now, there's a lot of other questions that I'm going to look at now. And let me just grab my sheet here. And we have a lot of great questions that have come in. And so at this point, I'm just going to talk to you reading off of the questions that have come in. And I want to thank all of you who have, have been following along and have sent me messages of encouragement as well. Um, a question that came in recently it was because of the chaos in the world, some of us parents are concerned about sending our kids back to our Adventist colleges or academies that are starting again soon, especially ones that are far away from home. What are your thoughts on that? Well, here's what I would say. Number one, Ellen White makes it very clear that education is important. And I, I get concerned when I see families feeling satisfied with 
finishing after high school and and not encouraging their kids to develop their talents to the full ability that God has given them. And Ellen White has made it clear that those who have an education, and that doesn't necessarily mean you go all the way through like medical school or PhD level, but I, I believe that includes college. Uh, I think college is really an important, essential part of education that, that our young people should go through. Um, when you get that education, LY makes it very clear that you can be 10 times more effective than if you don't have that education. So it's not that you can't be saved if you don't go to college, but you're limiting the usefulness that you can be for God by not going to college. And I've sometimes seen a mentality that, you know, it's a big, bad world out there, so let's protect our kids and let's not send them away. And, um, you know, people are going to still make their decisions anyway. And what I would say is send them to the best possible schools that uphold truth. So I'm not in favor of you sending your children to institutions that would promote evolution, for example, um, and just hope that your kids somehow survive in that kind of an environment. I wouldn't encourage you to send your kids to schools where there's rampant alcohol and drugs and violation of the Sabbath. I'm not in favor of those things. And I, I'm personally going to be very picky about the school I would send my children to should time last. Um, at the risk of getting into some degree of trouble for saying this, this is what I would say. I highly recommend Weimar College, Wachita Hills College, and Heartland College as places where your young people can go to, to gain an education and learn about the three angels' messages. Not that any particular place is absolutely perfect. You're going to find human beings with flaws anywhere you go. Um, but yes, time may be short, but until we have a Sunday Law, which was my first presentation, the End Time Prophetic Catalyst, until there's a Sunday Law, if your children are of school age, I would send them to school. I would send them to schools that are God-fearing and that will help to educate your young people to be workers in the cause of the three angels' messages. So I'm glad that you asked that question. And, uh, you know, be faithful. And, you know, I just because... I didn't mention a school that wasn't one of the three that I named. doesn't necessarily mean that I wouldn't encourage you to send your student to a particular place, but those three I feel very good about. Okay, now, um, a few other questions. Um, this question says, When the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and then Satan gathers the wicked together to take the city, how long will it take? It seems as if that could be a long time. Good question. You know, if you read the clearest that we have from Ellen White is from the Great Controversy, and it's the chapter the controversy ended. It's around page 664 and onward where Ellen White addresses this issue. And what she says in that chapter is that there's going to be a panoramic view of the history of the, of the world from the time that Adam and Eve sinned down to the end of time. And so that, that could take some time. How long that will take, I'm not sure. Um, it it doesn't tell us specifically how long it takes, but at that point it really doesn't matter because the righteous are saved and are in the New Jerusalem, the wicked are on uh, 
the earth right before it will be destroyed, and so there's no telling how long that will last. One thing that's worth mentioning is that Satan will deceive the wicked, and he will try to convince them that he is the one that raised them from the dead, and that they're well able to overtake the city. So Satan does the work of deception even after the millennium, even when he knows that his cause is lost. And you can make the same argument for him trying to deceive the righteous um, after probation is closed. Okay, now, this is another good question. It says, what's going to happen to those looking forward to the Lord's appearing who are elderly or lame or any others who might find it difficult to run to the mountains during the time of Jacob's trouble? You know, that's a good question. It's a tough question. You know, Ellen White does say that the Lord is going to lay, lay to rest some of the very elderly, some of the very young children, things of that nature. Not that I'm hoping that that happens. And there are certainly ways that God can protect those who are elderly That in a way that... <clears throat> He may not lay all of them to rest. <clears throat> Those who could still survive the final crisis, he may protect in, in other ways. We don't know all of the ways that the Lord will protect us, but we just have to trust him. But if you're not able to flee to the mountains because you're too elderly to go, just trust in the Lord that he will protect you and preserve you in the way that he sees best um, before he comes back. And that's where faith comes in. Okay, this is another good question. Um, and I, part of it is a testimony, part of it is a question. It says, Hello, Dr. McNulty, thank you for your series on end-time events. It is playing a large part in my own repentance and reformation experience. Praise God for that. It says, I'm wondering about an early close of probation for Seventh Adams. Doesn't that come before the first stage of the Sunday law? If I understand things correctly, it will be too late for us to form a love relationship and receive the early reign in Christ's righteousness under the duress and fear of that time that is swiftly approaching. Maybe you have expressed this to some degree, but I'm hoping you will emphasize it more clearly, because I believe the majority of us have counted on waiting until the first stage of the Sunday law to prepare. It is becoming increasingly clear to me that we are on the very verge of that first stage, hitting the entire world. Thank you so much for your sincerity and your seeming genuine experience with Christ Maranatha. Thank you for that question and your testimony. So I, I did address this in the presentations earlier. Now, here's my understanding. You know, 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins at the house of God, so that's true. But the Bible only describes one close of probation. And even in the parable of the ten virgins, where you have the midnight cry that wakes up all ten virgins, we saw that the midnight cry is analogous to the loud cry, which occurs because of the Sunday law. And those who have the oil on their vessels with their lamps, that's the early rain experience of the Holy Spirit, then receive the outpouring of the latter rain. And then a short period of time after that, the bridegroom comes, those who are ready, go in with him to the marriage, and the door is shut. Now, that tells me that probation closes after the Sunday law comes. Because the midnight cry is analogous to the loud cry, and the loud cry announces that Babylon's sins have reached heaven. Alan White says on last day events 198 that Babylon's sins reached heaven when the law of God is finally made void by legislation. That's the Sunday law. So the midnight cry, loud cry, wakes up the whole church. That's the Sunday law. After the Sunday law is passed, and then you have the various stages of the Sunday law, when you get to the death decree, probation closes, and that's when the wise virgins go in to the marriage with the bridegroom and the door shut, and then, and then the plagues begin to fall, and then Christ comes um, at the end of the seventh plague. 
However, the opportunity for preparation for Seventh-day Adventists does end when the Sunday Law comes. So if we're waiting for the Sunday Law to get ready, it will be too late. It's a bit of semantics, but I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's like taking a test for us as Seventh-day Adventists. When you take an examination, you walk through the examination room, and up until you walk through the door, you could have done some last-minute studying. But once you enter into that room, provided that it's a closed book test, it's just you and your pen and paper, you answer the questions, your opportunity for preparation for that test ends the moment you walk through the door to take the test. But your probation does not close until you hand the test in, and that's how I see it for Seventh-day Adventists. For Seventh-day Adventists, the examination begins when the Sunday law comes. That's the judgment of the living. Our characters will be demonstrated during that time, but it will be too late to form a character. And then probation closes at the death decree. So good question. Thank you again for going through that. Um, there's another really good question that asked about um, preparation for the latter rain and what is necessary for that. And <clears throat> they wondered what part has to do with inward heart preparation versus the witnessing element. Um, and the, the individual who asked this question, you really are onto this, and that is that we need both. We need heart conversion and witnessing that goes with that heart conversion. That's the early rain experience, both conversion and witnessing so that we will receive the outpouring of the latter rain. Listen, you're not going to do witnessing for the first time when the latter rain's poured out. You will have already been a good witness. You'll just have latter rain power to give that witness. And you cannot give the outpouring, or the, the loud crying or the outpouring of the latter rain with without a converted heart. And Acts 5.32 says that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. Okay, there's, this is a question from a, a young person, someone who's 21 years old over in a country in Europe. I'm not going to specifically name the country, but they are concerned about the inroads of the book Questions on Doctrine as it relates to issues such as the nature of sin, the nature of Christ, the last generation, victory over sin, our historical understanding of the sanctuary. And, you know, that, that's a good question. Um, this is a challenge in some parts of the world field where false theology from the book Questions on Doctrine has affected us. You know, Questions on Doctrine also compromised our understanding of what constitutes Babylon and the remnant church. Questions on Doctrine said that Babylon simply represented all of the unfaithful and all of the churches, but it didn't specifically identify that the papacy and the Protestant churches that are fallen, the Sunday-keeping churches, are part of Babylon today. And then it says that the remnant includes all of the faithful through all of the churches, which is simply wrong. The remnant are those who keep the commandments of God, which, is this, which includes the Seventh-day Sabbath, and only the Seventh-day Adventist church meets those specifications. So then, of course, it changed the understanding of the nature of Christ from having the nature of Adam after the fall of man to changing it to having the nature of Adam before the fall of man. And then it mentions that the atonement was finished at the cross. These are all deviations from what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy teach. Now, this individual asks, will we become united on these things before Jesus comes back? Um, 
And what I would say is, you know, I don't necessarily believe that everybody is going to have the correct view of the nature of Christ, for example, um, in order to receive the outpouring of the latter rain, as long as you believe that God can give you victory over sin. I think it's helpful to have the correct view of the nature of Christ, that if he had the nature that I have, that he is my example, and I can look to him in faith to say that Jesus struggled with temptation. He was tempted in all points like as I am, yet he was without sin. But I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because all of us have sinned. So be it Christ was without sin, so I can look to him as my example. I find that to be very faith-affirming in overcoming sin. And those who... A lot of times I find those who have some reason or another to claim that we can't really have complete victory over sin will quibble over the issue of Christ's human nature. Honestly, though, I haven't heard that much of a battlefield here in North America for a while. We've been fighting other issues with respect to what the Bible teaches, and it just keeps getting more intense. And so... I do believe it's helpful to have a, a clear understanding of that. And yes, I do believe God will have a people at the end of the world who will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and who will be surrendered to Christ completely and fully and that God will have a generation of faithful saints who will rightly represent his character to the unlooking universe. I don't expect the entire Seventh-day Adventist Church to unite on that point, and that will be part of the shaking. But again, there will be some people who don't necessarily understand every last theological point on those issues and still be saved. So hopefully that answers your question. Another question came in saying, where will God's people, and where will they be, and where should the people of God be when the little time of trouble will start? Now remember, the little time of trouble starts with the Sunday law. Jacob's time of trouble starts with the close of probation and the death decree. Where should God's people be? Well, Obviously, if you're already in the country, you're going to be at an advantage, but once probation closes, you're going to be fleeing to the mountains. That will be easier if you have already been out in the country where you've grown your own food. In the earlier stages of um, this crisis, as opposed to you're fleeing everything you own the way Lot fled Sodom. And so I encourage you to get out of the cities now. If you can get out now, do, do it now. Another, and the same person asked another really good question. Will any true Sabbath observer keep his or her rights till Jesus comes? No, clearly not. When the Sunday law is passed, that's the violation of, of our constitutional rights for civil and religious liberty to worship according to our conscience, to have the free exercise of religion. Once there's a Sunday law, there will not be the rights that we have as, as citizens of this earth. And so... It is what it is. Another good question. Could you please explain explain about the glorious land? What is it? So, you know, I do go through that in my book and just, you know, and, and we will go through that in our study on Daniel, although it will take some time to get to Daniel 11. But the glorious land, I believe, is the Christian church, including the Seventh-day Adventist church. The glorious holy mountain represents the remnant who survived the shaking. And um, so, good question. Okay, um, this was a, a good question too. It says, um, Dr. McNulty, will persecution in the time of trouble be universal? My question stems from this statement. 
And this is from Manuscript 18a, 1901. Christ declared that when he comes, some of his waiting people will be engaged in business transactions, some will be sowing in the field, others reaping and gathering in the harvest, and others grinding at the mill. And the person continues their question. This seems to indicate that not all Seventh-day Adventists waiting people will have fled to the most desolate places because of a death decree at the very end of his history. If you could, in a general sense, address the relation of final events in the United States to those in other prophetically insignificant nations, that would be helpful. Thank you, and God bless. Excellent question, Andrew. Thank you for this question. Yes, God's people will be persecuted universally, and I did address that in an earlier presentation. It was the presentation after the four stages of the Sunday Law, where I showed that the Sunday Law becomes universal, and every nation on the island of the seas will deal with this. Now, this specific statement, talking about when he comes, some of his people will be engaged in business transactions, some will be sung in the field. I see this referring likely to being the close of probation rather than actually the second coming. And, um, you know, if you see that differently, that's okay. But clearly, everybody who is a faithful Seventh-day Adventist is going to be hiding somewhere, either in prison or in the mountains or somewhere else um, at the time that Jesus comes, because um, as Isaiah says, God's people will say, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him and he will save us. But a very good question. Uh, I might have mentioned this before, but um, this question came in again where it says, in, um, it says Ellen White wrote in, um, I have the Somehow the reference didn't copy here correctly, but Ellen White wrote in one of her statements, let us read and study the 12th chapter of Daniel. It is a warning that we shall all need to understand before the time in the end. Oh, here it is. It's manuscript release, volume 15, page 228. That was written in 1903. So, yes, Daniel 12 is a warning that we all need to understand before the time of the end. I absolutely believe that. What I don't believe about this statement, which some people try to make it, into because Ellen White doesn't say this, but people try to make it sound like she says this, is that this would then mean that there's a literal reapplication of the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335. What I believe is that this is especially referring to Michael standing up, probation closing, the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, and then at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the special resurrection. Verse 3 says, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Those who, who the, the, those are the faithful who, who give the loud cry message. So I don't believe in a reapplication of the abomination of desolation, where you count from the Sunday law to when there's going to be a death decree and then the deliverance of God's people and the call to probation and that kind of stuff. So, this statement simply means we all need to understand the warning of Daniel 12, and that is that probation is going to close. God's people are going to go through Jacob's time of trouble, but there will be a deliverance, and God is looking for a people who will shine as the brightness of the firmament, especially during that time. So an excellent question. Um, and yeah, I don't see that as being connected to the warning found in Luke 21.20. Luke 21.20 is referring to Jerusalem being surrounded, and that was in 70 AD, and yeah, there is an end-time application of the abomination of desolation, but that's not um, referring to a specific time prophecy that we count by. Okay, 
Another question says, I was just reading The Great Controversy, and it seems that there is a group of people during Jacob's time of trouble that are not saved, but appear to anguish over their unconfessed sins. I thought once probation closes, people's consciences are seared, and they continue with wrong as though it were right. I've often heard pastors say, as long as you worry about your sins, your probation is not yet closed. I'm a bit confused now. Good question. Now, here's the reality, and this is a difficult reality, is that what you're referring to from that statement in Great Controversy is, the, is a description of the foolish virgins. Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons that the foolish virgins have a regard for the truth, they have advocated the truth, they are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted the old nature to be broken up. And then when probation, or when the Sunday law comes, which is before probation closes, they go out seeking to buy the oil, which is the Holy Spirit, which is a converted life, because they see that they need that, and they say to the to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise can't give them their their character. They can't give them the fruits of the Spirit. You have to have that for yourself. So the foolish virgins are those who are Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists, and this is going to be a tragedy in that when probation closes, they're going to be knocking on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But because their sins have not been blotted out, they will still remember their sins. And so, the, again, this isn't to, to scare you, but it's a reality check that the foolish virgins of Adventism who were alive during the final crisis will live through the Sunday law crisis and the close of probation and the outpouring of the seven last plagues. And I can't imagine anything worse than being a Seventh-day Adventist and waking up with the boils or something else where you're scorched with a severe heat, whatever it is, because you didn't receive the seal of the living God, because you didn't take the time to develop that walk with the Lord to have the fruits of his character in your heart and life. And so that is a warning. And so that's an excellent question that came in from Australia. Thank you. Um, okay, someone asked a question about the 2520 movement and what are some of the the, the pitfalls from it. Well, for one, the 2520, they, it's, it's a movement led by Jeff Pippinger. They promote this 2520 prophecy, which Ellen White says in Great Controversy 351 that the 2300 day prophecy is the longest and last prophetic time period. So that excludes the 2520 right there. But Pippinger has gone way beyond the 2520 now. And those of you who may have been following along, you saw that he predicted that a nuclear bomb would be detonated by Islam in Nashville, Tennessee on July 18, 2020, and there was a secondary date of July 31, 2020. And sadly enough, the people in his movement were referring to this as a disappointment. I mean, they were actually disappointed that tens of thousands of people didn't die by a nuclear explosion. I mean, that's, listen, Jesus not coming, that's a legitimate reason to be disappointed. That's the great disappointment of October 22, 1844. Being disappointed about those who were in a lost condition from not being blown up by a bomb, that's sad. And that's the 2520 maven, so stay away from them. I mean, that's like Jonah being angry when his message wasn't received, or when his message was received, and so none of it wasn't destroyed. Don't be like that. Okay, this is a good question. I would like to know where the latter rain comes in when you follow Jesus through the sanctuary. Thank you. You know, very clearly the latter rain is poured out when the sins of God's people are blotted out in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, 
when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, verse 20, and says, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached to me. The blotting out of sin takes place in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. That's the final atonement. And when the blotting out of sin, the sins of God's people takes place, the latter rain is poured out. Very good question. Okay. Um, so, let's see what we have here. There's a question about, okay, um, about North Korea and the Muslim countries, which have literally suppressed light regarding the gospel. Why would they observe the Sunday laws when this is going to be universal? Now, remember that the Sunday law will escalate in stages, and, and I even read a, a statement in this question and answer session at the beginning when I was referring to the personation of Christ by Satan, that Satan will work miracles prior to the close of probation. Um, in which it will be, it will appear to be that the power of heaven is on the side of the Sunday Law movement, and the Muslim countries, the atheist nations of the world, when they see these supernatural manifestations, they will fall into line. And I address this in Daniel eleven in my book. I'll address it in our study that um, I believe the Muslim nations of the world are symbolized um, by Libya and Egypt, and um, the atheistic nations that have yet to fall would be symbolized by the, the, the country of Egypt or the land of Egypt. And you can look at that up or wait for my series on Daniel 11, but good question. Um, this is another good question. Um, I would like to ask... Dr. McNulty from his studies, if there is anything that gives us an idea of how long it will take for things to progress after, after the National Sunday Law is passed, for example, how long will the little time of trouble last? How long will the great time of trouble last? How long will the seven last plagues last? Any comment of the above would be appreciated. Now, that's a great question. So, the honest answer is I don't know for sure, but this is what I would say. You know, Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11, great changes are seen to play, take place in this world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. So it's not going to take years upon years upon years once the Sunday law comes. The message that will be given in the midnight cry when the Sunday law is passed is, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, and go ye out to meet him. So it won't be too long, but there will be a period of development where there's the four stages of the Sunday law. And eventually you can't buy or sell. And then finally there's a death decree, which leads to the close of probation. Then it will take a period of time for those plagues to fall. They will happen. And Ellen White makes it clear that the seven last plagues will not be universal. So play, each of the plagues will happen in various parts of the world. Finally you get to the sixth plague, and then the seventh plague is the seventh, the second coming. But the sixth plague is the battle of Armageddon, the spiritualism, Satan personating Christ, as we talked about. That's going to take a little bit of time, so you're definitely looking at a number of months. It's not just going to take two or three weeks. It'll be a number of months. Um, very good question. Um, now, um, another good question that came in um, is from my friend Rhonda. It says, regarding the New World Order, I was under the impression from the vision of Daniel 2 that there would never be a one-world government. They shall not cleave together. Can you more fully explain the one-world government that reigns for one hour? Thank you for this exciting and important study of upcoming events. That's a great question, Rhonda. Because Revelation 17 does show that the ten horns, which represents the kings of the earth, 
they will reign for one hour with the beast. Now, uh, that word one hour is, um, it can be t um, translated as one hour, or it can be translated as a short era in the Greek. So it's a short, indefinite period of time. And as Seventh Adventists, we believe that there's no time prophecy between 1844 and the Second Coming. So at the very end of the world, when all the world wonders after the beast, the deadly wound is healed, there is an attempt to bring all of the world together. It's this new world order, this one world government, where there's an attempt to bring all the world together. But as Daniel 2 says, they will not cleave together. And so it's a very, at Revelation 17, it's like it's this short era. It's a very short period of time. And it's going to clearly be longer than 15 literal days because that's what one hour would be prophetically. But when the kings of the earth reign with the papacy, they will make war with the Lamb. And that making war with the Lamb will be the death decree. And then you have the seven last plagues. And the seven last plagues will almost certainly... Excuse me. The, the seven last plagues will almost last... Certainly almost... There's no way that they would last 15 days. They will certainly last longer than that. So that's a short era. And... So, very good question, but, so yeah, they won't really cleave together. It's a short period of time that the kings of the earth will reign with the papacy. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Um, another question, when the Sunday law comes, at what point do our colleges and universities, but also our hospitals, cease to exist? You know, it's hard to say for sure, you know, and again, I'm not here to pinpoint fingers at any particular institution or hospital, but we will almost certainly lose some of our institutions when the Sunday law comes. And I say that simply not to be critical, but because some of our institutions are already leaning towards accepting the LGBT mentality so that they will be accepted by society. So if they're doing that, they're already kind of setting themselves up to go on along with the Sunday movement. And again, I'm not naming any names, but just you know, if you're going along with modern culture, you'll go along with a Sunday law, too. So the institutions that go along with Sunday observance, they would be lost to Adventism at that point. Um, but again, the church will go through. Some institutions may be lost, but the church itself will not be lost. The church itself, as a body, will go through. It's a visible church. The sinners in Zion will be shaken out, but the righteous will remain. So don't say, well, I'm part of an invisible church and I'm just going to go through. Now, there's a visible church that will be seen, that will go through, and the sinners in Zion will be sifted out and the righteous will remain. So stay with the body. Even if we lose some institutions, God forbid, I hope I'm wrong on that, but that's what we... Well, actually, I'm not wrong on that because Ellen White tells us that we will lose some institutions. Okay. So we're about to, to wrap up here. I've gotten through almost all the questions. Let me see what we got here. Um, th this is a good point here. It says, you stated repeatedly that the coming of Jesus depends on our readiness as a church and not on the prophetic calendar. This is comforting now that God wants all of us to be ready. However, as I look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church today, it appears that it is getting weaker rather than stronger. No prophecies are preached. Worldliness and secularism are entering it. Obviously, the church is being shaken already, but how long will God wait for us to be ready? If you look at the church in general and it's a condition, and if you hang the fulfillment of the end of, of the end time events on the readiness of the church, it will take many more years for things to happen before Jesus can come back. Well, here's what I would say to that. You know, we need to look at things through the eye of faith, because if we look at other human beings, 
it can be easy to become discouraged, we need to look to Jesus because he's doing a work that we can't always see what is happening. Yes, it's true that in many of our churches, prophecies aren't being preached and we see worldliness and secularism entering into it. But, you know, God has raised up a lot of different avenues for our message to continue to go forward, even from within the body of the church. And so, you know, don't lose hope. And the fact that we see this pandemic happening right now, for example, would suggest to me that the winds are starting to be released. The four winds of Revelation 7, which suggests that God's people are close to being sealed. I'm not saying for sure that that's going to happen, but let's lift up our, our head because our redemption draws near. Um, and eventually, you know, God is going to finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Um couple of other questions. I think I'm just going to make this. I think this will be... Um, the last one I'm going to look at. It says, in the chapter on the shaking in the last day events compilation, there seems to be a multiplicity of catalysts and features of the shaking. I think that you've touched on this somewhat, but is it fair to say that the shaking is accumulation of a number of catalysts and features? If so, is there any particular order to them? Very good question. You know, LMY says it's a sudden and unlooked for calamity. I think there's going to be a major calamity that's sudden and unlooked for that will lead to the call for Sunday laws from the people of America, which will cause the legislators to then pass that law um, to form the image to the beast and the mark of the beast. What that catalyst is, I'm not sure. It could be an economic collapse. It could be um, a major bomb going off, God forbid. Who knows? But um, it's something that will come quickly and unexpectedly, suddenly, and, and it will be unlooked for. Um, you know, I, I should answer this as well. Will the shaking take place after the Sunday law is in place? Definitely. When the Sunday law comes, you know, the, the liberals are going to be gone. They're going to join the world very quickly. But then we'll also see the difference between the wise and the foolish versions. That's kind of the final shaking out of Adventism. But then many others will come in during that time. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to consider. There's a lot to ponder. A lot of great questions that came in, and so I just want to say again to all of you who followed through this entire series, thank you for following along. Thank you for sharing these messages with your friends. I hope and I pray that these messages will stir within your heart a desire to be ready to see Jesus in the clouds very, very soon. And on the points that we may not see completely the same, let's show charity towards one another and let's continue to to learn, and I've appreciated people sharing their thoughts with me about points that they thought might be different than how I've shared it. And look, I'm a human being. I am not an infallible interpreter of Scripture or the spirit of prophecy. If there's a clear statement that comes along that shows me where I've been wrong, I will readily change my position. And um, if I've stated something in the series that was wrong, I'll correct it later. It's you know, it's not about trying to just be right to be right. No, it's, it's about what truth is. I want to, to share the truth as it is in Jesus as best as possible. And sometimes we, as human beings, will state something incorrectly. And if we do, then we try to find the correct answer and make that correct later on. But the bottom line is this. We've gone through a very clear, straightforward presentation on last day events from beginning to end, from the Sunday law to the second coming. And... 
it's clear the roadmap that we are facing for the future. How soon the Sunday Law is coming, I don't know. Could it come out of this pandemic? It could. Is it going to? No, I'm not saying that it will, but it could. I'm not predicting that, though, and I'm certainly not setting any time to it. I do have some trepidation for, humanly speaking, for our country in the months that lie ahead. No matter who wins the election, I could see some significant civil unrest as a result of the outcome of the election, no matter who wins. And that could lead to an escalation of the end-time crisis. I'm not saying that it will, and I'm not setting any dates for that. I just say that to say, we've gone through all of these things. You can go back through these presentations, the 10-part series, and end this question-and-answer session, and review these points. And I encourage you also to study for yourself. Read through the book Last Day Events. Read through the book Great Controversy. Get the Closing Events chart by Gordon Collier. Avail yourself of any other material. There's a good book by W.D. Frizzy on Last Day Events as well. Read that book. Do whatever you can to make yourself aware of what is coming upon the world, because Jesus is coming again, and he is coming soon. And we want to be ready to meet him, and whatever deceptions the devil throws our way, whether it's before the close of probation or after the close of probation, we want to be so grounded firmly in the word of God that we will be faithful unto death, no matter what. Amen? So let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings to us. Thank you for leading us through this series on last day events. May we be found faithful when you come, and may Jesus come, and may it be very soon, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you to each one of you, and may God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.